I'm Khalil Ekeluna, and this is Nashville. The energy of performing in front of a crowd is intense, frightening for some, exhilarating for others. Actors have the ability to channel that energy and create an alternate world for audiences. That's part of what makes theater so vital. The Nashville Shakespeare Festival, oh, pardon me, the Nashville Shakespeare Festival has been giving the people of Music City that experience for 34 years. On the bill for this year's summer festival, William Shakespeare's Cymbeline and August Wilson's Gem of the Ocean. Later this hour, we'll talk with the directors of both plays and meet festival organizers and hang out with a couple of the actors. But first, nearly a year ago, the city of Waverly was hit with devastating floods. WPLN has been covering the effects of the flood and how the town has been recovering. Here with us now is WPLN Enterprise reporter, Damon Mitchell, who has been leading that coverage. Hey, Damon. Hey, Carlo. So you've been back to Waverly repeatedly to report on the recovery from the flood. A year later, how are the people of Waverly doing? I think a lot of people are um, hopeful. Uh, a lot of people are happy to actually be moving back in. Uh, of course, those are the people who were displaced and then maybe just finished the rebuild of their home. Um, some people are, are still concerned and worried about the future of the town. Uh, a lot of people were, that were displaced did not come back, and pretty much all of Waverly's public housing units were destroyed. So those people, unless, you know, you had like a relative or a friend that you could stay with in Waverly, have not returned. Now, you spoke to Gary Jackson, who moved to Waverly in 2017. He lost his home in last year's flood, but he talked about what that day was like for him. Let's listen. I know your listeners won't be able to see this, but so my door was here. This is the inside of the house. The water's pushing on the door. It took the door and bent it in half. So I'm watching it bend the door in half, and then there's a tree trunk coming through the door at me. And then, so I'm dodging all this debris. There, you can, I can see cars coming at the house, and I'm praying that they'll go around rather than smash through. And luckily they did. But and then on top of that, I'm trying to keep two freaking out dogs alive because they can't. They're on. I've got them floating on mattresses to keep them alive how's how's gary doing now he's doing good he actually um i actually sent him a text on monday um and he said that he was in the process of kind of moving back to waverly um he's been staying i think it's um maybe somewhere south of where we are now in nashville uh but he's been pretty good i know when i did uh, interview him um there was kind of a sense of loneliness that he had. He was kind of naming some of his ne his neighbors that didn't return. And then he lives not too far from actually really, I guess I could say across the street from the Waverly Elementary and Junior High Schools, which have been abandoned. So um, his neighbor, he's, he's came back. There has been a lot of progress, but he's still kind of feeling kind of an emptiness on that street. And talking about that emptiness, you know, Gary is intent on staying, but you've also talked with people who've decided to leave and not rebuild. Tell me about them. So I interviewed uh, Linda Bothrop, um, who moved to Waverly in 1973 with her husband, and they have children in, in Mississippi. So when the flood happened, um, you know, they're, I want to say, mid-70s, so it was more realistic and kind of more convenient for them to kind of just cut their losses and, and move with their children and grandchildren. 
Um, but the, they they still have a connection to Waverly. Um, Linda Balthrop's husband um, gave the house. Uh, well, I don't, I don't want to say gave, but the house is now belongs to his brother. So mm. um, he's still in Waverly. And actually, uh, even though they're in Mississippi, they kind of made a trip back to Waverly just to see how things were. And I got a chance to check up with them, uh, to check on them. But um, they're kind of just cut your losses and let's cut, try to move forward. Did other people really express a sense of loneliness to you when you were out talking to them? Yeah, a lot of people did. Um, and so Waverly is a lot different from when the flood first happened. Like you're not seeing debris kind of everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of businesses, you know, they've opened back up. Um, but there's still, as someone who maybe grew up there or lived there, there's still kind of this sense of, I know maybe this person died, so I won't see them again. Um, I know this business isn't coming back. Um, And then maybe I have friends or family members in Waverly that aren't coming back. So there's still that sense of kind of the city, and it's a very small town, so it's kind of empty, although progress is starting to happen. Mayor Buddy Frazier grew up in Waverly and has been working to get the town back on its feet with this recovery effort. Let's listen to how he says the city has responded. We put all of our routine work aside, you know, when this happened. And, and what we're doing now is is, is flood recovery and and uh, we're, we're working with FEMA trying to get trying to get back to uh, some degree of be, being normal and and getting life restored for a lot of these people that, that have been uh, that have been re- uh, displaced. How are those rebuilding efforts going? Um, I don't know if slow is the right word, but I, I'd personally say slow but steady. Um, and for, for some people, maybe it's, it's been a, a fast rebuild if they did lose their home. Um, but slow in the sense that, you know, the flooded elementary and junior high schools, um, they've decided to kind of abandon that building. And they had like a, there is a, a boot factory in Waverly, and they were going to try to renovate that to make it kind of a, a home for at least like a temporary home for the students. So that hasn't happened. The, the kids are still kind of moving with the routine that they had last school year. So that's been slow. Um, and then some businesses still haven't recovered or op- opened back up. Um, but you also have people who businesses that are, you know, the parking lots are full of customers again, and they're seeing the same faces. So it's been kind of a, a slow but steady recovery. How does the the decision by the schools to not to leave, how does that impact the city? I think that so before the class of 2020, uh, 2022 graduated and walked across the stage, um, the seniors uh, kind of gathered at the elementary and junior high schools and kind of did like a goodbye walk. Um, And I actually met a teacher there who kind of said that, hey, I taught this person's mother or dad or grandmother. So the elementary and junior high schools, they were like, everybody went there. And it's like, maybe your next door neighbor was your teacher or a lunch aide or something like that. So it was really kind of a part of the culture of the community. So not having that and knowing that those buildings won't be there, it's kind of like a, it's a big big shift in culture uh, for the town. How has the culture of the town really 
changed since the flood. I mean, this is a devastating experience that has to have some type of effects. Yeah. So um, Waverly, like all cities, um, is is full of different people, but uh, a lot of people have things in common. And even though it's a small town, it's um, from what I've been told and what I've heard from people I've interviewed, it was a small town where everybody kind of knew each other, but it wasn't necessarily like this real bonding type of town. Um, okay. But I've been hearing that after the flood, there's been more like of a a bond between strangers or people maybe you knew but didn't really have a lot in common with. Like those people are now speaking and um, there's just like a lot more togetherness and, and people are moving in unison in a sense because everybody kind of was affected by this flood. Now, you've been covering this for a year. You've been you know, talking to people who have suffered tragedy and really trying to recover from this. How has covering this changed you at all? Um, really, I, I just say as a, so before this, I'd never covered um, anything where, where I was like talking to people that may have lost like a child or something like that. Um, so it, it really kind of, changed my maybe mindset I'd say as a reporter of like knowing how to like when to like get that moment to get the person to to say what they have to say but also knowing when to kind of back off because Mm -hmm. maybe the conversation is a little bit too hard for them so um I guess the right thing to say would be that it kind of humbled me as a reporter and just like made me um kind of it, it helped me to put myself in other people's shoes when I am kind of interviewing them. Mm-hmm. That was WPLN Enterprise reporter Damon Mitchell. You can find his story about the city of Waverly's recovery one year later at WPLN.org. Damon, thank you for being here today as always, and thanks for your reporting, man. Thanks, Khalil. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll meet the organizers who have brought us the Nashville Shakespeare Festival for 34 years. This year's summer festival opened last night. Have you been a fan? Have you been to the Nashville Shakespeare Summer Festival? What was your favorite play? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. Last night, the Nashville Shakespeare Festival officially kicked off under the lights of the outdoor stage at One City. It was the opening night performance of Cymbeline, the first of two plays the festival is putting on this year. Our producer, Rose Gilbert, was there. The lawn is covered in folding chairs and people stretched out on picnic blankets, ready to enjoy the show. For some, like volunteer Paul Shatskin, it's their first time at the event. I have not done this before. Uh, and and I, I can tell you that um, Shakespeare was always hard for me when I was in school, but uh, last year I took a class in Hamlet and it finally started making sense to me. And so I decided to volunteer for the festival to open myself up to a little more. For Ben Boatman, on the other hand, the Shakespeare Festival is a summer tradition. This year, he brought along his two daughters as well. 
and this will be their first time seeing any Shakespeare play. For still others, this festival is a reminder of just how much stuff there is to do here in Nashville. Niamari Edgerton moved to the city from Indiana just last year. We're here outside and it's a little Shakespeare concert. Like, that's so awesome. Nothing like that has ever happened wherever I used to live. Cymbeline will be at One City through August 21st, and then the festival's second play, Gem of the Ocean by August Wilson, will run from the 25th through the 28th, with more dates coming up in September. Now, to help us learn more about the long history of this festival in our city, I'd like to welcome my next guests. Two of the people who make the Nashville Shakespeare Festival happen. Denise Hicks is the executive di artistic director, and Robert Marigzio is the managing director. Denise, Robert. Thank you so much. Welcome to This Is Nashville. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So, Denise, how did it go last night? That sounded fun. It was. Exactly. It was so much fun. It, that first night just sparkles. It just, like, the stars shine, mm -hmm. and uh, and the energy in the field is just really brilliant. So it was so exciting to have our opening night crowd there. Mm -hmm. They're always warm and welcoming, and the cast was so ready for an audience. So it was magic. So tell me, how did the Shakespeare Festival, how did it get its start? Well, way back, before even Robert and I were involved, mm -hmm. a group of actors decided that Nashville needed a Shakespeare in the Park, just like other cities had, and they, in 1988, put on As You Like It just with their lawn chairs and their street clothes, and they um, they rehearsed and put it together. And I happened to be in the audience that year and thought, this is the coolest thing. And I agree, Nashville needs a Shakespeare festival. Okay, so what were you doing at that time in 88 here in I Nashville? Was, I was a primary actor with the rep at that time, which was Tennessee rep back in those days, and, um, and now is Nashville Repertory Theater. So... I was uh, just an actor acting anywhere I could and um, and then got involved with the Shakespeare Festival. The The next year I was in a show at TPAC and then 1990 was my first year. Okay. Now, so Robert, how did you become involved <laughs> with the festival? Well, uh, I auditioned for this play back in 1994 called The Midsummer Night's Dream and uh, I did a poem, I think. I did a, I did a sonnet as my <laughs> audition hmm. and they told me to have fun with it and uh, I, I, I was 19 years old at the time and uh, it was the first time I got cast in something where I was going to get paid. <laughs> I think I might have made $400 that, that, that summer for, for eight or 10 weeks of work. But, okay. um, but it was a fantastic experience. And uh, I just uh, fell in love with doing the show. And, uh, you know, we had this, this wonderful play. We had a blast doing it. And uh, thousands of people came out and had a kind of a party atmosphere out there in the field as we did it. And I just couldn't resist. I, I just kept coming back year after year for uh, to, to work on the festival in one way or another. And here I am 28 years later still doing it. <laughs> yeah, the fever is still strong. Yeah. So it's not cheap to throw and to put on a play. <laughs> Yet you all, you all have managed to make the summer festival free. How have you been able to pull this off all this time? I sometimes I don't know. Uh, it, it's it's a, almost a mystery. I feel like if there are gods, there are theater gods. That's that's <laughs> that's for sure, uh, because um, uh, it, it's tough. You, you know, uh, any theater production uh, doesn't subsist on its ticket uh, revenues alone. I think probably thirty or fifty percent of of a typical production gets its revenue from ticket sales, and we don't even charge ticket sale, you know, a ticket price, uh, but people do donate when they come, and we do 
things like fundraisers, like we have a nightly VIP experience that people can pay an extra premium price for, and they're helping us out, and they get some special treatment, a dinner, reserved parking, reserved seating, and that really helps to raise some funds toward the show. And then uh, we're just kind of working all year round trying to raise some funds uh, from individuals. There's lots, there's, there's hundreds of wonderful people, kind of grassroots level supporters who give their $5 a month or, you know, mm-hmm. some, or their larger donations. And we write grants constantly to foundations and to government, for government grants as well at all levels, the state, the local, the federal level. And that takes so much of our time, so much of what we do every year is sitting at our computers, uh, writing grants and and asking uh, folks for money to help to to make this happen. So you spend all this time and all this effort. So tell me, how important is it to you that this event is free for audience members? Well, uh, it, it's it's essential, I think, to, to the spirit of, of what we do. Uh, from the very beginning, we've wanted to overcome that barrier to people accessing the arts. Because it's so, we feel uh, as idealistic artists that art is what's going to save us all. It's going to, um, you know, it's essential for people to come together and have reasons to come together. Uh, and especially now after the pandemic and, and people mm-hmm. needing to have a connection with other people and to have a shared shared cultural experiences uh, mm-hmm. as well. And be in, in a space with other people and feeling feelings and laughing and enjoying themselves uh, we, we've just always felt that's, that's the gift we want to give to the city, and it's so essential. Denise, I see you laughing. I see you nodding your head. I am. I just, uh, it, I'm, I'm picturing the word community, and I really feel like art puts unity in community. Like mm. art brings people together and creates unity because for that evening where Rose was last night, that entire audience was their own community sharing, like Robert says, laughter and um, and that and and theater is also really thought provoking, which creates to me stronger relationships because you should leave our show talking about what you just saw mm-hmm. and instead of you know just saying well that was fun and then that's the end of it. But Cymbeline and Gem of the Ocean both really will will stimulate some questions for people that then as great art should that should. Um, Enhance your relationships. You're talking about this being thought-provoking. Now, the people on stage who provoke those thoughts, the actors and the crew who are working so hard to make sure everything works together, it's not free. They have to get paid. How are you all maintaining a professional cast and crew and sure that they get paid fairly for their skills? Robert? Well, we, uh, like I said, we just got to keep raising funds all the time. And, you know, the goal keeps moving farther away every year because, of course, expenses get greater. And what we what people need in order to get by uh, is increasing. So we have to, you know, increase what we pay all the actors and the technical staff and designers. All of that needs to increase uh, every year. And uh, so we, we are constantly chasing that moving gold goalpost and um, it can be tough. Uh, it, it can be exhausting at times to year after year, uh, you know, 34 years in a row, basically mm-hmm. to um, to feel like uh, you're never going to you're never going to make it. Yeah. Um, but we, we do. We just barely make it. And it, 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 it relies on lots of goodwill from the community, lots of community partners that like like one city the uh, that's providing the venue to us where we're performing now, uh, and they're providing things like dressing rooms and uh, 
and restrooms and ample parking and, and all those sorts of things. Uh, we couldn't do it without making those relationships with the community. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we have to be constantly out there all year round, like I said, not only raising money, but also making those kinds of relationships to, to help sustain uh, the festival um, for, from year to year. And, uh, yeah, mm -hmm. I don't know. We, we make it uh, by, by the grace of the theater gods. And then <laughs> Denise, as the executive artistic director, how have the artists and the actors and the crew members, you know, told you about how the, how much they appreciate and respect that? Right. Well, we do we do hire professionals. So they, they are great at what they do. These actors are some of the best you can find anywhere, and our technicians and designers are just really, really wonderful. Theater is a really collaborative art, and so they understand that... They, I don't think anybody is in theater for the money, mm. but we do have to make livings. But the the real work is is in collaboration and in and in working together. And that that is sort of that self perpetuates because the more you collaborate, the more exciting the work gets, and the work is in many ways the reward. Now you you mentioned it earlier, and we could hear it in that scene before the segment started. Being outside to experience a play is just Lovely. And I'm sure there's different considerations when it comes to producing a show outside as opposed to a traditional theater. Robert, what are some of the differences that you have to consider? <laughs> for, for years and years, we've struggled uh, with this, especially uh, before we knew we were performing in Centennial Park. Um, I think we have slightly better facilities now, but we basically have to build a theater outdoors uh, almost every night. Uh, very little of our equipment can actually stay out uh, in the elements from night to night, so we have to bring out uh, sound equipment, uh, various cable runs uh, for, for, for lighting gear and that sort of thing, have to be put out again every night and uh, put it back away at the end of the night. So there's a tremendous amount of work uh, just on a daily basis to, to make all of that happen. Um, there are considerations like, you know, you, you have to have ample restrooms for people. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and um, like, luckily we have them now, but uh, back in the old days, uh, um, bad bad bathrooms was almost part of the Shakespeare tradition. <laughs> <I think. laughs> but there are so many. Uh, it's really nice now, though. It's really nice. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I, I'm, um, uh, but also to make sure that there's a festival atmosphere with uh, things like food trucks and, and other vendors and um, you know, people would come out two hours early to stake out their places so that they have a good place for the show. And uh, at a certain point, you know, 20 some odd years ago, we decided, oh, we, we need something, some kind of entertainment when when this when people are there that early and just hanging around. So we started to do a pre-show concert uh, at uh, an hour before the show every single day. And uh, we've continued that to this, to this day. And we've got some lovely, uh, diverse acts this year opening for us. Um, Thanks to Mary Sack. Uh, Mary yeah. Sack is our uh, pre-show concert series curator, mm -hmm. and she's lined up some really amazing um, entertainment options. One other thing about outdoors uh, performing is keeping everybody hydrated. Like mm -hmm. it's it's really a challenge that when we were at TPAC, <laughs> like when we perform there or any of us. Um, you know, it's not as much of an issue. You're freezing in TPAC, but out. Yeah. and when you're outdoors, everybody's sweating and everybody has to stay hydrated. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. We're talking this hour with Denise Hicks and Robert Marigzio of the Nashville Shakespeare 
Festival. All right, so let's talk about the plays. Mm -hmm. Shakespeare's Cymbeline last night's opener and August Wilson's Gem of the Ocean, which opens next week. Denise, why these two plays? These two plays um, align really beautifully. They're very, very different. Uh, Cymbeline is a fairy tale set in some time long ago. And um, Gem of the Ocean is not so long ago, 1904. Uh, it's the first in August Wilson's 10-play series. Uh, he wrote it, I think it's the second of the last play he wrote, but it's the very first in his 10-decade series. Um, both of these plays have really have strong female characters as a central through line. And uh, and they both are, uh, they, they align in ways about um, redemption and inspiration and forgiveness. They, they both, to me, are very um, uplifting at the end in a way. Like, uh, I think Gem of the Ocean is more cathartic and Cymbeline is just more hilarious mm-hmm. at the end. So, but both should leave our audiences feeling, um, feeling thoughtful and grateful and inspired. Okay. Now I've got uh, just about two minutes left. Robert, you know, you all have been working through the pandemic Mm. and I'm sure you're you're both excited to have people being able to gather again. Like you said, you're bringing the unity in community. I'd love to hear from you, Robert. Like what's one thing you're really looking forward to at this year's festival? Mm. I, uh, I'm really actually looking forward to sharing uh, Cymbeline with, with people because people don't know this play and it's actually hilarious and has a satisfying emotional conclusion to it and the, the performances are wonderful uh you know p- people uh t- tend to know about five shakespeare plays you know julius mm-hmm. caesar and uh, macbeth hamlet um midsummer night's dream romeo and juliet yeah there they are <laughs> um but cymbeline is a hidden gem and actually in the hands of our director leah Lowe, it shines um i i'm i'm really thrilled with this production and i'm really hoping lots of people will come out and and see it uh, and i'm also uh, thrilled to be uh presenting uh, uh, august wilson's gem of the ocean and I, i'm i'm uh, thrilled to to see that i actually don't get to see very much of the progr- uh, productions until they're almost uh almost ready to perform because of my position these days so i haven't seen very much of gem yet but i'm really looking forward to to uh, diving into it Denise, about 45 seconds. What are you looking most looking forward to? That Well, he stole my ideas. <laughs> <laughs> I totally agree. I think both of these titles are so exciting to share with this community. And, um, and yeah, and, and what makes me most excited is watching every night from the first blanket that gets laid on the ground or the first lawn chair that gets set up and how that audience grows and swells up to four or 500 people in an evening. So I love watching the the crowd gather and then sharing great art with them. That is absolutely beautiful. I want to thank you so much for being with us today. That is Denise Hicks, who serves as the festival's art executive artistic director. She was joined by Robert Marigza Yo, who is the managing director of the Nashville Shakespeare Festival. Again, thanks to you both for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll meet the directors of the two plays featured at this year's Shakespeare Summer Festival. Are you planning to go to the Shakespeare Festival? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back.
I'm Khalil E. Colonna, and this is Nashville. The Nashville Shakespeare Festival is underway. This year's festival includes, features two legendary playwrights from very different eras. Who better to give us an idea of what to expect than the directors of those two plays? Joining me now are Leah Lowe, director of William Shakespeare's Cymbeline, and Chuck Smith, director of August Wilson's Gem of the Ocean. Leah, Chuck, welcome to This is Nashville. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, so now both of you, are masters of your craft. And I really want to get to that. But Leah, let me ask you first. You, your play, it opened last night. How are you feeling? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, huh? Yeah, it was a lovely night at the theater, in, at the outdoor theater. Mm-hmm. Um, we had people, we had dogs, we had food trucks, um, great opening musical act, um, really, really satisfying performance. Yeah, so all that hard work is paying off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, you both are masters of your craft. And Chuck, briefly, you know, tell us, how did you get into theater and directing? Oh, wow. That's a that's a that's a long story. Uh, I I really st- kind of stumbled into theater. It's not something that I uh, I actually have always wanted to do. I was I was uh, I was a Marine and I was in Japan and I was uh, getting ready to reenlist in Japan to stay in Japan back in the uh back in the early 60s and uh, I got homesick. And so I said, I, I'll go home, get this homesick, homesickness out of the way and then come back in before I lose my rank. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, a couple of friends of mine who I was hanging out with, they needed an actor for it uh, in a play. And i uh, make a long story short, I walked into a theater and I never walked out. That's beautiful. Yeah. Leah, how about you? What was your path? Well, you know how little kids dress up and make up worlds and pretend. Um, Many people sort of grow out of that and find other things to do, but I just never did. So this became really my only career path. That's beautiful. Chuck, tell us, why did you choose Gem of the Ocean? Oh, well, uh... Last year when I was working for the festival, I did a, a production of August Wilson's uh, Jitney. And uh, we're, uh, the festival said they were wanted to focus on women. And uh, one of August Wilson's best characters is Aunt Esther. And uh, she leads the cast in uh, Jim of the Ocean. So I suggested Jim of the Ocean and they... They said, yeah. And I'm very pleased because I'm very close to Jim of the Ocean because I I was in the, I'm not in, but part of the original production as uh, in 2003 when it were uh, in the world premiere of it at, at, at the Goodman Theater. I was the dramaturg. And uh, just recently, uh, earlier this year, I directed, I came full circle with the play at the Goodman by directing a production of it. Uh, and so, you know, it's, 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 it's very close to me because I was there at the very beginning of it. You got to work with August Wilson himself. That is true. That's the second time I work with him. What is it about August Wilson's writing? What is it that resonates with you? Well, with me, uh, it's that he tells really strong stories about the African-American community from the layman's point of view, from the uh, ordinary man's point of view, from the poor man's point of view. Uh, it gets it 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 uh, 
these are characters that I know. Mm. That I feel that I've I've been around these characters all through my life, and they sound the way they talk, uh, the way I've heard African Americans talk all through the years that I've been I've been around. So it's uh, he's he's got a real he's got a real gift of of, of making making these 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 ordinary people come so alive that they that you understand exactly what they're talking about and you and you, and you place you can easily place yourself in their situation. Leah, why did you decide to stage Shakespeare's Cymbeline? Well, it's a play that I've loved for a really really long time and not many people know it. So several years ago, um Denise Hicks, the artistic director, um was staging some pop-up staged readings around town of different plays, and she asked me to pick one. I picked Cymbeline, and she said it was the first time she ever saw the humor in the piece um, and found it very funny. And so I said, you know, maybe we should think about doing this sometime. Mm -hmm. Um, And she finally took me up on it. So Shakespeare's work, it's centuries old, but it still has this this resonance today. How does Cymbeline illustrate that timelessness? Um, well, for me, Cymbeline is like it's an imaginative sort of fantastical tale or really a set of tales because there are several different kind of interlocking plots. Um, but ultimately, it is a story that deals with issues of forgiveness and reconciliation Um, which I think is something, it's about people who make mistakes, right? Like us all. Like us all. Mm -hmm. And people who have to find their way through the mistakes that they've made. Um, It's a funny play, but at its heart, you know, it really is exploring this really kind of critical aspect of the human condition that we all encounter. That's right. Now, so tell me, what adjustments did you have to make to the play to keep it kind of current and accessible to audiences? Well, it's a really long play, so I cut um, I cut a lot of it. I would say that if you were doing the entire play, it would probably be about a four-hour performance. So okay. um, we cut probably, I would say, 40% of it um, and really tried to simplify. You know, there's a lot of stuff that's sort of topical to Elizabethan England. Um, there is uh, some commentary on the political situation that I just don't think reads so well. So we cut some of that. And I really, in um, preparing the script, tried to focus on what I thought was really important about the play. It's imaginative. It's an adventure tale in a lot of ways. It's very, very funny. And it has a heart. Mm. Now, Chuck, this is your third time directing Gem of the Ocean. And as you mentioned, you have this deep, personal, intimate connection with the play. How did your approach change with this production? Well, it's outdoors, and I think that's the uh, the main thing we had. To, I had to think about uh, uh, that was that was that was the my biggest worry. But now I realize it's it's really it's kind of immaterial mm. uh, because of uh, the wonderful set design that uh, Shane Lowry has come up with for both of these plays, and. Uh, it's outdoors, but he's 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 brought us. He has uh, brought Jim of the Ocean into the house of Aunt Esther, uh, the primary character in the play, and uh, you kind of lose the the whole th- uh, thing about being outdoors, which I love, which is wonderful. You know. 
Now, you know, Chuck was just mentioning Shane Lowry, the, the set director, the set designer. What, and I see you nodding your head, Leah, <laughs> you know, as a director, how important is it to, get, to have someone on the crew who can bring this vision you have to life? Oh, it's huge. It's huge. And um, this was a tricky assignment for Shane because he had to think about how do you create a set that can serve both of these very different worlds, right, using some of the same elements and both. And so we went through set idea after set idea after set idea. And I think maybe it was the fifth one that that stuck, but um, he's created this beautiful visual um, world for Cymbeline that works well outside and um, elements of it then go on to serve Gem of the Ocean, which is, I mean, that's tricky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was impressed. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Lake-Alona. We're talking this hour with Leah Lowe and Chuck Smith, who are directing the plays featured at the Nashville Shakespeare Shakespeare Summer Festival. Now, the dialogue for these works is very challenging and precise. Chuck, you are working with August Wilson's words. What are you conveying to your actors when you guide them through the play? Well, uh, mainly that uh, August Wilson's words are extremely uh well while they he's he uh it, it's it's very much like shakespeare we we study shakespeare in in school most most of the most actors study shakespeare in school and when i was in school i studied shakespeare uh as an actor and we know that if you miss a word of dialogue then that's going to trip you up and you might not be able to get back into the rhythm and might lose your train of thought trying to figure out how to get back on track. Well, August Wilson is the exact same way. Hmm. His dialogue is 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 uh is poetry, very much like like Shakespeare. And if you lose a word in a poem, you 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 die, you, you completely uh, crash the rhythm, mm-hmm. and so getting getting August Wilson right, you got to say each word, every word. Otherwise, you're gonna lose you're gonna lose the poetry, and you might you might you might lose your train of thought. All right, so, so Chuck, Chuck, will you share one of your favorite moments from Gem of the Ocean? Uh I can't share my favorite moment because I don't want to give it away. Okay. Uh, uh, let's just say one of my favorite scenes takes you on a, a spiritual journey. It's, I'm sorry, I'm in a ho- I'm in a hotel and it's the fire alarm has just started. So wow. Well, we hope everything. I'm going to have to cut out. All right. Well, we hope everything is okay. Leah, will you set the scene for us and and read for us a, a part, a segment of Cymbeline? Sure. Um, so. As I mentioned, the play has many, many interlocking plots. And at a certain point, all of these plots become too much. We don't know how we're going to resolve all of this. And um, in a time-honored theatrical tradition, Jupiter, the god Jupiter, comes down and um, is speaking um, to some ghosts who have appeared in a dream of one of the main characters. And Jupiter is a little annoyed, but um, but tells us, no more, you petty spirits of region low, offend our hearing. 
Hush, how dare you ghosts accuse the thunderer whose bolt, you know, sky-planted, batters all rebelling coasts. Whom best I love, I cross, to make my gift the more delayed, delighted. Be content. Mm, I love that. What made you choose that part? Well, because I think, I think, you know, the play is about encountering hardships, difficulty, living with the consequences of the mistakes you've made. And Jupiter just comes down and says, like, yeah, you got to go through this, right? You have to go through this. But you're going through this for a reason, to make the gift the more delayed, delighted. And I just think that that's such a, a beautiful thought to keep in mind while we're in the midst of it. Yeah, you can't go through life avoiding life. Yeah. So, you know, you've been on the theater scene for a while here in Nashville. How have you seen it grow? And where have you, where do you see it going? Wow. Well, I, I mean, I think like anything else in Nashville, the more Nashville changes, the more the Nashville theater scene changes. Um, I've been in Nashville for about 11 years now, and I think, you know, there's just brilliant artists moving to Nashville every day. I think that the theater scene has become much more diverse. There's a huge um, sort of propulsion of new plays and new works around town, and that's a very, very special sort of theatrical tradition for a city to have. Um, so that's something that I see as being really exciting about it. But I also th see theater becoming more a part of the kind of cultural landscape, and that is something that continues to delight me. Um, you can, when I first moved here, I think you could see everything that was happening theatrically in Nashville, and now that's getting pretty hard. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, it's growing. Really quick, I've got about 40 seconds left. You know, Chuck, I was able to meet two actors who work on Cymbeline and Gem of the Ocean. And Chuck, is Chuck still with us? Chuck is no longer with us. Wow. But I just want to say I was able to meet a couple actors who worked, who were working on both. And, you know, they mentioned that Chuck is very specific in his direction. And I kind of saw a little bit of, I heard a lot of respect, but I saw a little bit of fear in their eyes. <laughs> <laughs> That's something, would you agree with them? Um, I, you know, I've never, I've known Chuck for 30 years. I've never seen him direct. So I, so, but he is a precise and thoughtful guy. So yeah. <laughs> so we got a minute. How intense are you when you're directing? Um, I like to think of myself, you'd have to ask the actors that, um, <laughs> but I like to think of myself as being very collaborative. I've been so gifted in this production to be working with a fabulous cast um, and actors have brilliant ideas, right? And one of the best things that I've learned as a director is never to have too much sort of attachment to my own ideas to turn down someone else's idea that is far better than mine. Mm -hmm. So um, this has been a delightful process for me. I've gotten to work with a lot of new actors um, that I didn't know and have really welcomed a collaborative and warm rehearsal process. Wonderful. I want to thank you so much for being with us. That is Leah Lowe. She is the director of Cymbeline. And we were also joined by Chuck Smith, director of Gem of the Ocean. Thanks to you both for being here. Really, truly appreciate it. All right. It is Friday. That means it's time for me to hop out of the studio and ride shotgun with two of our fellow Middle Tennesseans. Today, I'm meeting up with actors Tamiko Robinson-Steele and Brian Russell. They were at the Neely Auditorium on Vanderbilt's campus, wrapping up rehearsals for August Wilson's Gem of the Ocean. Shh. 
It's showtime. You're in two plays at the same time. That can't be easy. Never super easy. Um, you have to mentally prepare to go into your day to be physically present for the duration of the rehearsal and the rehearsal period. It's pretty difficult, but it you know it has a nice payoff. One is a wild, big, huge, romantic Shakespeare romp, and the other one is a just solid August Wilson piece that's just lovely to listen to, to watch, mm -hmm. just to be around. And, and my characters couldn't be any more different. Same. I'm playing an apothecary and then an apprentice of a, uh, a woman who washes souls. Here, you cook it. You turn it down. I can't do everything the way you want me to. I'm not you. You act like they know the way to do nothing. I got my own way of doing things. I like the fire high. That's the way I cook. You like it down, that's the way you cook. If you ain't cooking, you ain't got nothing to say about it. All you got to worry about is eating. Our director, Chuck Smith, on Gem of the Ocean is so specific. He's very specific. And that is a good thing for an actor sometimes because it takes thinking out of it. He'll give you a direction and you, as the actor, have to figure out why you're doing it, because he has a vision. Yeah. <laughs> I like the chuckle you guys had when you talked about the intensity in which he directs his plays. Have you ever had a situation in your careers where the director was kind of batshit? Oh my gosh, oh, yes. Lordy. I have one. It was like I was being punked. He was unhinged, and it was really unhealthy, and he really shouldn't have been directing anything. I don't mind a strong-handed director. I don't mind someone who is very firm. No two directors are the same no, no, to me. Not a, not a, I, mean, I had one, you knew 10 days into the process of a two-week rehearsal process that the man was gonna go off. <laughs> you know, you're professionals, you can't even get these lines. What do you do? I can't, I, I mean, he'd just go off in language far stronger than that. Mm -hmm. It would scare the pee out of you. How long have you two been at the craft? I've always innately known that this is what I wanted to do. I couldn't put it into words uh, because I didn't have immediate outlet for it in the community that I grew up in. I did like one play in high school. So it wasn't until I got to college, I was a computer science major. I was miserable. Hmm. <laughs> and I went to go see a play directed by the late, great William Barry Scott. I remember slapping the, the arms of the, the chairs that I was sitting in, in in the theater and knowing this is it, this is what I wanna do. And I went and changed my major the next day mm -hmm. to theater. 2020 would have marked my 40th year in the business. Oops, so, so it's 42 now. Wow. Tell me about an audition you just absolutely bombed. <laughs> oh, there are many for Oof. me. <laughs> once you do your audition, once you do your piece, whatever it is, you can hold on to it and it can eat you up and you can shoulda, coulda, woulda yourself to death mm -hmm. or you can let it go. There's a certain level of Freedom. Con freedom, confidence, yeah. that when you're just being, then when you're trying to put something on. And for me, I mean, particularly with film and television, I walk into an audition room and they're gonna know, they, eh, no. Because <laughs> I have a face that's known to break cameras. It's... Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> so when I, you know, I, I was like, okay, got, that, do I have a good side? I think unfairly, maybe this is biased of me. <laughs> Most of the people who go out for it want to be a star in some sense. And yeah. they don't understand the value of being a working actor oh or a working festival. I said, oh. honey, let me mm -hmm. tell you, hmm. I would much rather be a working actor, actor than to be a celebrity any day of the week. I don't, I don't need 
the recognition from an adoring public. I want people to appreciate my work, but then I also want the peace from the enjoyment of my accomplishments. Yeah, no offense to Tic Tac performers, you know, that's cool. You got 20 million hits. You ain't doing what I'm doing. I'm an actor, I'm a performer. I take the words of great poets like Shakespeare or like August Wilson, I take those words, I put them on a stage. That's what I do. You know, even in television. <laughs> I did a series called Tropical Cocktails. <laughs> it's time for you to meet my friend, C.D. Dave. Look, that's him there. I'm gonna tell a very rude story about him right now. Everyone listen. C.D. Dave's unstoppable undulations, the sensuous undulations of his lower half specifically. Oh, such sweet motion, C.D. Dave. Oh, the lessons you taught me. He made extensive use of ropes, harnesses, swings, and pulleys. Gravity was defied on a nightly basis, let me tell you. sold my soul, but <laughs> I still took what those words were and put it the way my director wanted it to do. That's what I do. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. On Monday, we're re-airing our episode from April, talking with local musicians about how they're getting by in an expensive city and a changing industry. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are Lorange and Namir Blade. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you next week, everybody. And be good to each other.